Hello there. It's Monday, February 1st, 2016, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this lovely podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, If you have watched this program before or if you're watching it for the first time, please like, comment, and share. I really appreciate that, and thank you so much again for being a part of this. Um, Today we're going to talk about UFC on Fox 18. Really looking forward to this one, and a lot of interesting things happen on this card that are worth uh, noting. And in particular about how they intersect with other different issues in the sport that are kind of important. So as you guys know, I used to try to keep it to 30 minutes. I don't know how long this is going to be, but I'm going to try and keep it compact. We're going to talk about the fight card itself. Um, We'll go in-depth on some of the Sage Northcutt stuff, a little bit on the Ben Rothwell stuff as well. Um, I'll try to go more in-depth. I'll explain that in just a minute. And then uh, we'll talk about some individual stuff that happened in the fight and then, of course, what's coming up next. So really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and kick things off and talk about UFC on Fox 18. Uh, This event took place. It aired the main card aired on Fox, the preliminary card on Fox Sports 1, and then the three early fights on uh, Fight Pass. This was at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. It was a gate of uh, 818,000 with an attendance of 10,555. Not particularly uh, all that great at the gate, but it didn't have the most interesting card in the world. So that's not all that surprising. Um, the guys who got bonuses were Fight of the Night, Jimmy Rivera and Yuri Alcantara, or Alcantara, I'm not sure how you pronounce it properly. Uh, performance of the Night, Anthony Johnson and Ben Rothwell. The, the event was headlined, of course, by Anthony Johnson taking on Ryan Bader. So let's go start there, and then we'll work our way down. All right, Johnson versus Bader. Johnson wins via KO punches at 126 of the first round. 86 seconds is really all it took. What do you want to say about this one? Uh, there was a lot made about Anthony Johnson and whether or not he has the mental fortitude to withstand things. And, and, and to be frank, all guys have a breaking point. Maybe his comes a little bit early if you can get past some of his uh, better offense. But if you can't, his better offense is is, is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, and Bader just didn't see, Look, I thought Bader had gotten a lot better about not so much trading in the pocket, but pushing opponents back with his punches. Um, even if he was darting, he was still... Um, you know, making he just understood he couldn't win backing up, and this one he just shot from way outside. I didn't feel like he committed to this, to any kind of strikes in any way that he needed to. Um, and a couple weird things happened after that. So number one, the, the shot gets like if if you notice when Anthony Johnson gets taken down, it's typically from double underhooks. Typically, there's an underhook there. You can get him and scoop him underneath the fence if you can get that underhook first. But if you just shoot from the outside like Phil Davis did or like Ryan Bader did, it doesn't go so well. So that was the first thing I noticed that didn't seem all that awesome to me then when Anthony Johnson spins to the back you know chested back Bader never got a hand up to stop him from going around so so Johnson got to go all the way around and then Bader tried this Kimura look as, as a rule if you're going to do a Kimura you have to have some kind of guard locked up too you have to pull their arm against their body but that only works if you can hold their body if you can't hold their body, it won't work. Now, there are some other scrambles you can do there. There's some Granby rolls. There's some things you can do to hold it and then reverse position. But generally speaking, if you're just holding a Kimura with no guard, it's going to end real bad for you. You can look at look at what happened in the second uh, Pitbull brother, um, Patricio Freire versus Daniel Strauss fight. Again, no 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 guard with the Kimura and bad things happen. So it's just it's just a bad idea. He winds up getting flattened and then just, just pummeled on. So... Um, uh, yeah, not 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 great, not great for Ryan Bader. Uh, Anthony Johnson, I, I still feel like John Jones has unfinished business with him, so I'd love to see that fight. Uh, great fight, Ben Rothwell taking on Josh Barnett wins by guillotine or go-go choke, depending on how we'll talk about that in just a second. At three forty-eight of the second round, real quickly on some of the striking, I thought the lean that that 
Ben Rothwell was doing was I didn't quite understand it. I want to talk to him more about it because he was getting pot shotted with the jab a little bit from Barnett. So I wasn't quite sure what that was all about. Uh, maybe he was trying to bait the punch so he could counter. It's not altogether clear. But that is neither here nor there. What is interesting is Josh Barnett loses by submission hold for the first time in his career. Um, an unbelievable job by Ben Rothwell. So I wanted to go in-depth on this go-go choke. People had sent me an article that had been written about it. I read it. Um, I called Ben Rothwell personally, and I sent Luis Claudio an email, hoping that I would get a response in time. I even delayed recording this podcast a little bit with the hope that I would get a response. I have not. So, unfortunately, I wanted to talk to Ben to get the better understanding of what had happened. The article makes it sound like it's not merely a 10-finger guillotine, but a 10-finger guillotine with like some kind of shoulder pressure on top. Again, it's not altogether clear. Look, if it's just a 10-finger guillotine, then, you know, between the pinky and the ring uh, finger, that cups the chin. The other hand, you know, uh, essentially knuckle to knuckle, the thumbs are on top of each other, kind of like that. And then you scoop into the neck. Uh, It would be this way, underneath the jawline. You don't quite come on top because it's hard to scoop, so you kind of hold it to the side a little bit, elbows closed. Top of the head can be seen a little bit, and then the, it scoots in. And there are all different kinds of ten-finger variations, so that, that's the common one. Chin here, knuckles, they, they roll in as you hold the head. It's not quite over the top like a Marcelo teen. Um, but I don't know if that's the go-go choke or not. I don't know. It, it, it looks like it's it exactly. Anyway, so Barnett goes with a single leg, can't get it. You know, Rothwell appears to be very adept at this joke, locks it up, and you see Barnett go, uh, this doesn't feel so awesome, and tries to roll. And credit to um, Rothwell. Rothwell, if you notice, Barnett's, when, when Dos Santos would go for guillotines on Velasquez, Velasquez would go all the way back down. He would flip all the way back down. Rothwell tried that, and he couldn't. Actually, excuse me, not Rothwell. Barnett tried that, and Rothwell wouldn't let him. Rothwell actually followed him to the point where he could only kind of get to a hip a little bit. Like, he couldn't really get the angle he needed to get out. And then you saw Rothwell follow and then sit into that choke. Boy, that must have been nasty. To tap Josh Barnett, you must have had a terrible... It must feel so awful, that choke. Um, Yeah, the go-go choke. Some people call it a 10-finger guillotine. It might be a 10-finger guillotine with some kind of adjustment. I'm not entirely sure. But whatever the case, it's brutal. Uh, Jimmy Rivera defeats Yuri Alcantara of unanimous decision, 29-28, 29-28, 29-28. I thought Rivera had a, uh, a decent striking display, but really I thought the most important part of his game was that he was mixing up takedowns in, in between and not getting caught. Alcantara, I think, has a very tricky guard. Um, Alcantara, a little bit too late, on, a little bit too little too late on his offense. Um, so a nice one for Rivera, but otherwise unremarkable. Brian Barberina defeats Sage Northcutt via arm triangle choke. I don't know what you want to call this choke, at 3.06 of the second round. It's half arm triangle, half Von Flew. It's not a real Von Flew. Everyone's like, oh, it's a Von Flew choke, it's a shoulder choke. Sort of. The mechanics of that are there, but the control is missing for a true Von Flew choke. We're going to go in depth on that in the second segment. Um, let me just say something real quickly about Sage Northcutt. Apparently he has very sensitive fans. I, th- I found that out. That's, that's, that is, uh, uh, which is fine. I mean, everyone's fans are sensitive, so okay. Um, let's be honest about something here real quickly about tapping. Everyone's like, ah, the kid's got no heart. He's got no future. I really vehemently disagree with both of those things. Number one, if you think that this submission means he can't ever be champion, you need to just stop watching MMA. That's not true at all. He absolutely can be something special. He's 19. He's a teenager. 
he's a teenager. It's not true that somebody like that has discovered everything about themselves they need to to push themselves properly. He's still in a self-discovery phase, and you really got to give that kid kind of credit there. He's a very tough kid. He's very athletic. He's got a lot of things going for him. He's just young and inexperienced, and that does not mean he can't be something more. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is you got to be honest. Everyone who has ever rolled has tapped to something ridiculous. Now, maybe if you're a Division One wrestler and you came down the pike and, and you started on the mats as basically a blue belt or a purple belt or something like that, you know, maybe you've only tapped to things that were a little bit better. But the fact is, if you've started out at white belt and you didn't have a grappling background previously, you have tapped to crazy, stupid things. I've tapped guys to strictly just straight up shoulder pressure. When I was in Bogota, Colombia, I went to the um, uh, Alliance School out there, and I cardio tapped. Now, understand Bogota is higher in elevation than Mexico City. It's more than 8,000 feet in the air, um, you know, 3,000 more than Denver. But okay, you should never cardio tap. Like, I could see Kurt Osiander in my head being like, what are you doing, you loser? You know? Um, I've done that. And other people have cardio tapped, too. Like, it's if you've ever started out, you don't know your limits. You don't know how to push yourself to your limits. And you don't know what's what. You don't know how to get out of things that are actually kind of easy to get out of. You don't know your own body. So... Fact of the matter is, if you've ever rolled even a black belt out there when they were a white belt, they probably and, and and blue and purple, they probably tap to like ridiculous things they would they, that are embarrassing. That's the only way you get better. So everyone being like, oh well, Sage tapped to this, Sage tapped to that. It, it you can't overlook it because it's in competition and it's in competition in the highest organization in terms of elite talent in the world. In that sense, you can criticize it, but just generally making a comment that a guy tapped to a bad thing. Everyone taps to bad things. That's not that's not remarkable at all. Now, that being said, let's talk about this real quickly. People have noted saying, well, Conor McGregor tapped to a similar kind of choke. Yes, he did on the regional scene. That's my point. The point is not so much that it is the end of the world that Sage North got tapped to that kind of choke. It's really not. It was a tight choke, to be perfectly honest. Um, not tight enough that he should have tapped for someone at this level, but that's the point. It's this level. If the kind of MMA you see at the UFC, if that's the only kind of MMA you know, you're looking at a really aberrant form of MMA. Most of the MMA that takes place across the world in regional shows doesn't look like that. It looks very, very different. In regional shows, guys tap to all kinds of weird things. They get knocked out quicker or what cage doors come flying open. Everything that happens in the cage and around it, 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 it doesn't look the same. So to me, that Conor McGregor was tapped like that and came back and became a champion, maybe the first to wear two belts, is in no way surprising. Guys have to figure out their limits. they got to figure out how to push themselves to their limits. But that kind of thing shouldn't happen under the spotlight of the UFC. That's the difference. It's okay if it happens on a regional circuit and a guy comes back and, and, and winds up being maybe one of the best fighters we've ever seen. That, 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 that's, that, that's entirely normal. The problem is you shouldn't see that kind of thing in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. You should have those issues worked out before you get here. And I understand people like him and they'll say well, he may get to a point where those issues are no longer relevant. And I would agree. I think, I, I think it's absolutely foolish to dismiss his chances. All I'm pointing out is... They're signing people earlier and earlier in their careers as a way to keep other competitors from doing that. And that's okay if you want to do that, but then you open yourself up to these kinds of criticisms. You're having guys in there who just simply haven't, they, they don't know themselves enough yet as athletes and competitors to really push themselves to their maximum elite level. He may get there very soon, not there yet. Uh, okay, uh, Tarek Safadine defeated Jake Ellenberger. 
I always say Tarek. I know a guy named Tarek who spells it the same way, but maybe it's Tarek. I don't know. Uh, 29, 28, 29, 28, and then, again, 29, 28 across the board. Ellenberger had a big punch. You saw that in the first, I think, in the third, um, hurting Safedine, but Safedine having better movement, switching stances, um, uh, and b- single-shotting, but really getting out of the way of any of the big bombs for the most part. Um just connecting with Ellenberger and then shifting out of the pocket or cutting an angle uh, for an exit over and over and over again. Ellenberger kind of just having one, two punches to go back on. Um, big punches, of course, but it just seemed like his offense lacked a second and third gear that it needed to really match the adjustments that Safadine was making. Um, so, you know, Safadine, he had a long layoff, so I don't think this was his best performance by a stretch of the imagination either. But you just saw that there's an adeptness that comes with Safadine striking, um, a guy who can change um, stances that easily is going to have a lot of different opportunities to connect with you. And maybe they're not the hardest punches in the world, but they get the job done. Uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira defeated uh, Olivier Aubin Marcier, uh, two 29-28s and then one 30-27. Again, Aubin Marcier, if he can't, really get you down and pound on from top. He doesn't have a whole lot to work with there. In the grappling department, he could not match Fajeda. Um, Fajeda, you know, this is the guy that knee-barred Chris McRae pretty early. He's got a lot of tricks, and he's got you know, good fundamentals. Um, but I thought really the difference here was the striking difference and how much he's grown in that regard. I thought, you know, against Dustin Poirier, he didn't look all that good, but he looked a lot better here. Certainly, Aubin Marseille is no Dustin Poirier, but... Um, just that he was able to put better combinations together, hand and feet combinations, side to side combinations. He had a decent punch, uh, making Aubin Marcier worry about the takedown. Even when he got the takedown, he couldn't really do much with it. You know, it just really negated his offense. Aubin Marcier not getting his head off uh, at the end of combinations for Fajera to just tag. So he would bang, bang, and then stay here without doing bang, bang, and then getting out at an angle. You know, he would just kind of stay right there, and he was getting torn up at the end of those two. So, um, you know, tough, a tough loss for him, a good win for Fajera. But, um, you know, you're just seeing it more and more and more. If you don't have truly dynamic offense in, in more than one or two phases of the game, you're in big trouble in this game. It, the sport is changing that quickly. Uh, Rafael Natal defeated Kevin Casey at 337 of the third round. Not the greatest fight in the world. Natal's jiu-jitsu eventually took over. People were remarking that, you know, Kevin Casey is a Hicks and Gracie black belt. And I've said this before, too. Look, if Hicks and Gracie gives you a black belt chances are you earned it. It just seems like from an MMA context, he doesn't have the most dynamic guard, um, and he's not so much of a submission threat. Maybe on top as he passes, but underneath uh, in MMA, I just haven't seen a lot of evidence that's a great place for him. He got tired pretty easily, and Natal was able to eventually take over. Of course, the fight was you know halted for one reason or another, but um, in the end, it just seemed like Natal was... He just had a few more tricks up his sleeve. And, and matching jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu, he seemed to be just better there anyway. Wilson Hayes, man, this was big. Defeating Dustin Ortiz, uh, 30-27 across the board. Wow, didn't see this one coming, I'll be honest. Uh, one time I attended a Wilson Hayes seminar back in like 06, 07 or something like that. Um, and uh, it was with him and Roberto Godoy, the guy who gave him his black belt. And, you know, Wilson is just um, a beast on the ground. My God, he's so quick, so athletic. He has such good balance on top. He can just transition positions so easily. He has strong fundamentals, plus he's a good athlete. And he's the kind of athlete that I mentioned before. It's not just that he's, like, powerful or something, but he's so nimble, and yet such, such, he's such like a cat. Always seems to land on his feet. It's really kind of incredible. Um, 
But the truth of the matter is, he was kind of touching up Dustin Ortiz a little bit in this one. I was very surprised by that. A big Achilles heel has been that that Hayes has had to go to his grappling. And, you know, if you're a very good grappler like Hayes is, but you're going to be against someone else who's also a really, really good grappler, it can just be hard to make anything get uh, done. If you're Wilson Hayes and you're going to be against someone who you outmatch, well, okay, you know, things go well for you. At this one, I thought he had much better defense. You saw him as he exited combinations. He always had the hand by the ear. Um you know, which reduced his ability to continue to fire, but it kept him safer, and I think that's the next evolution in his game. Uh, moving out to Alliance really seems to have paid off for him. I really was very impressed by what Wilson Hayes was showing here. I thought there was a lot to like. Um, Dustin Ortiz also was kind of getting beaten in the scramble. I thought, you know, I knew that Hayes was better on the ground on top, but I thought he would win, but through like attrition, that he that eventually Ortiz would get back to his feet, and most of the time he was able to, but it took him a lot longer. Boy, Wilson Hayes is a terror on the ground. Really, really kind of impressed, and he's looking really good at flyweight. Uh, Alexander Yakovlev defeated George Sullivan again. Uh, go back and read Jack Slack's article about shifting uh, and punching. That's what you saw here with Yakovlev, and uh, excellent job at it. Landed a two-one um, as he as he shifted inside, and that was really at a different angle. Caught George Sullivan dead to rights. Yakovlev is one of these guys who I don't know how good he's going to be, but he has continuously impressed me with how much better he continues to get. Um, I saw the the wrestling takedown defense he showed against Gray Maynard. I thought was really first rate and here you see he can drive in the pocket he can shift in the pocket there's a lot to like about Yakovlev I don't know if he's a championship caliber fighter but um, if you beat him you've got to be good uh, Alex uh, Casares defeated Masio Fullen 30-27 across the board this was a pretty simple one right go back and watch um, different cool different kicks and strikes they were throwing but the, the reality was this neither guy is much of a counter fighter and so what you saw was the guy moving forward was the guy who was basically winning each exchange. Well, in most of the cases, that was Casares. Um, he was just able to be the guy dictating the center. He was able to guy to dictate the kicks and then sort of recapture that space to keep Fulham on the outside. Fulham had a few moments, of course. Don't get me wrong, but in, and he, I think his striking has improved dramatically. Actually, the last. Uh, or during his UFC tenure. But really, this was about who was the guy driving forward. Again, we don't want to get into a space where we're saying the guy who pushes forward, who extends the traditional conception of octagon control, is the one necessarily winning. But in this particular case, I thought that was pretty true. So then you move to the preliminary card, uh, the UFC Fight Pass portion. Randy Brown, you might remember from Looking for a Fight, defeated Matt Dwyer. Tough fight, 29-28 across the board. You know, Dwyer hustles, man. I don't know what kind of athlete he is and how far he's going to go in this game, but you got to admire the kid's hustle. Still wasn't enough. Brown, a bit of a slow start, but then it, I think, came alive at the end. A uh, couple of Darce chokes he couldn't quite finish, or Bravo chokes, I think, depending on... I need to go back and look at how they were, but... And he was able to lock up this grip with a head and an arm um, and just couldn't quite make him work. And I thought Joe Rogan's point about that was correct. You can get these guys with long arms, and what will happen is they'll lock up a Darce. But unless they've really refined it, what winds up happening is it winds up just being like a power front headlock, where they can control you with it, and it's uncomfortable... But they don't really have the finesse to finish it. I think there was one moment where he tried a gator roll against the fence, and it was just not, it just wasn't going to work for him. It was against the fence, it wasn't properly sealed. So it, it can wind up being a front headlock, but rather than just a traditional front headlock, you just get that power grip on it with the, with the bicep. Um, but, you know, I thought he, ha- I thought what I saw from Brown was he had a nice, something nice about his game in every area, some decent takedown defense. Um, some decent striking on the outside. I thought he had some uh, excellent use of kicking range. Had a couple good single-shot jabs. A um, lot to work on, no doubt about it, but potential. 
Uh, Damon Jackson defeated Levon Makashvili. Via, it was a, oh no, excuse me, it was a draw. I'm sorry. Uh, 29, 27, 28, 28, and 28, 28 because of the point deduction most likely that Makashvili suffered. Everyone's kind of getting bitter about this because I think the first one was what? Knee to the head of a downed opponent and then the eye poke. And because one, because it wasn't two eye pokes or it wasn't two fence grabbings, it was just two general fouls, they have uh, an issue with it. I do not. If you are reckless with the way you are fighting, and you know, again, it's referee discretion in that regard, but you may not like the particular application of that point being taken away in this scenario, but what I'm trying to say is, as a general rule, I don't mind it if a, if a referee says, you had one foul here and one foul there. They're not identical fouls, but you were warned and you're still fighting recklessly. I'm going to take a point. I don't mind that at all, actually. I think that's kind of all right. But, you know, look, these fight pass cards, and you saw this with the Brown-Dwyer fight and the Jackson-McIsvili fight, and certainly in the martin Oliveri fight, this is the portion of the card where everyone wrestles against the fence. You know, these are good fighters. They're tough fighters. They're good. They're credentialed grapplers. They're guys who are hardworking, but they just don't have that extra level that you're used to seeing in certain guys in high levels of the UFC. Um, so beyond that, you know, I thought Jackson had a good jab uh, and, and some decent fence wrestling, um, but in the end, just not enough. Tony Martin defeated uh, Felipe Oliveira. Rear naked choke, 302 of the third round. This was nice. He had one bit where I think he had double unders. He pushed... Uh, Oliveri in, yanked him out, and then used his own leg to trip out the post leg of Oliveri, get on top, eventually transition to the back. This was a scenario where the right hand of Martin, he was kind of sagging off to the side, but he had his own right hand behind grabbing the right wrist of uh, Oliveri. That's what saved him eventually because that's what enabled him to follow him as Oliveri was twisting and turning. And when he eventually launches the choke, what was interesting was that it wasn't quite locked on. He was again, he was kind of sagging. But what you'll see is he twi- he 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 seals it so tightly that he's able to wrench his body into the correct position and then finish the choke. That was kind of nice. You know, you always say position before submission, and he kind of rushed position here. But it was one of those, you know, it, it, a submission works if you can do it. If it elicits a tap. It's a good submission. That goes back to the Barbarina versus Northcutt fight, right? If you get a submission someone taps, that submission worked. It may not work in every case. Not everyone's going to tap to the same kind of thing, and it may not work every time you try to apply it. But if you get something and someone taps to it, that's a good submission. So, you know, he took a calculated risk there by saying, I I am sagging off the side, but not too much. And with that not too much, if I really squeeze this choke and I use it to right my position, not only will the choke get tighter, but I'll fix that last lagging piece of me coming off with my weight to the side. So really good job by Tony Martin. Tony Martin's had a tough run in the UFC. He's fought a lot of tough guys and uh, come up short a few times. But, um, you know, he's he, he, uh, I admire the hustle of his game. Um, okay. So, with that out of the way, let's go to part two. Let's take a look at, again, the Rothwell choke. I called him and I, and I tried to reach his coach. I just couldn't get a hold of him. But, in fact, actually, let me check one last time on Facebook to see if he has commented. No, nothing yet. Um, okay. So, with that out of the way, let's stop this part one here. Let's go to part two. Let's take a look at what happened in the Barbarina versus Northcutt fight. And let's talk about that choke, what it means to tap, the truth about tapping. And really, that choke was not a full Von Flu, and it wasn't a full head norm triangle. It was a weird mix in between. I'll explain why right now. All right, so let's take a look at this a little bit more detail. Uh, some folks have said, well, it was a head and arm triangle. And other folks have said, well, it wasn't a head and arm triangle. It was a shoulder choke. It was a Von Flew choke. Um, the problem with the choke is that it was both and neither at the same time. It was halfway head and arm triangle, partial Von Flew, but it didn't do the things a typical Von Flew might do to 
make it work. So let's here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you what happened here, and then I'm going to show you a different example of a Von Flu choke working from opposite side half guard. But there'll be a critical difference that we'll have to pay attention to that you'll see. So here you can see 209 of the second frame. There's other things that Sage did right and did wrong in this fight, but let's just sort of focus on um, this if we can. You see him in half guard here, not using much of a knee shield, trying to do some bicep control and some collar ties to keep him both down and, and the punches away. Um, these weren't overly effective tactics from him, but, uh, you know, okay, it's common that many fighters do these kinds of things. So, and in that sense, not, not a lot to say about it. Uh, not particularly impressive here, but not uniquely bad either. All right. So now you see Brian, Barber, Brian, uh, Brian Barberina. Laying down some hammers, coming up the top with an elbow. Good job by Sage, kind of partially blocking it there. I mean, Barbarina was getting through, but in this particular case, uh, he was not. But the key here is to see a couple of things. One, there is space between their chests. And two, you can see how far away uh, the elbow is, the right side of Northcutt from his body. His elbows are away from his body. Now, in MMA, that has to be to a certain extent, but that'll be a little bit more uh, problematic later. So we keep going. Another one sneaks through about a second later. So, you know, again, some of the ones he was blocking, some he wasn't. You can see no knee shield here by Northcutt. He's sort of holding on to half guard with his life. If he had a knee shield, this right leg would be in this hip, kind of pushing uh, Barbarina away. But for whatever reason, he didn't do it. Okay, so now he tries to turn to his side. Again, no knee shield. That knee shield would have really sort of helped him here a little bit. Um, I, I don't know why he didn't do it. Again, presence of mind, pressure, who knows. But um, a small little detail that would have helped him. But, okay, he's rolling to his side, which is good. You never want to be flat on your back. Now, if you're going to roll to your side, there's certain things you have to do. But as a general rule, always better to be uh, on your side than on your back. But here is the problem, and I just don't understand what he's thinking here. Look at this. This is the right arm of Northcutt. Barbarina didn't shove his head under. It looked like what Sage was trying to do was sit on his hip, wrap the head, and then maybe use that to sit out or sit up for a guillotine. Maybe like Carlos Condit a la Carlo Prater. It's not clear. But what he does is he essentially gives the beginning of the choke to Barbarina. That's a pretty critical error. I'm just being honest about it. Again, we all know, 19, I make no predictions about his future. He could very well end up being champ. But if we're just speaking realistically about this moment in time, very poor decision. Very poor. Okay, there's just no other way to say it. So he gives him the arm. I just don't understand it. And you can see there, uh, go back and look. You can see Bar Brian Barbarina has his hands in the mat here, which is neither here nor there. But then as soon as the head comes around, he says, thanks, puts his hands together uh, for the beginning of the choke. Again, still no knee shield. So now Brian Barbarina goes underneath and tries to make this thing work. And you can say... This is the beginning of the head and arm triangle. I want you to notice something which we're going to call back to later. I want you to notice that the right arm of Sage is completely free. Yes, it is being compressed into his neck. And that, of course, will contribute to the ultimate tapping that happens here. But I also just want to make a point here that um, it's free. The right hand is free. The right elbow is free. They may be getting locked, it may be getting pushed, it may be being partially controlled. I don't deny any of that, but it's not trapped. Keep that in mind. As you can see here, we keep going. Two of five of the round. Barbarina's sort of still on his knees here. He's not really pressing into the choke as of yet. 
And so this is where it begins to get a little tight. We sort of skip five seconds here. You can go, or about four seconds rather. You can see now Brian Barbarina has changed the choke a little bit. He is, I mean, he look how far under this he is. Like, you can say there's so many things that Sage could have done here a little bit better. Um, you know, number one, I, you sort of take Kurt Osiander's philosophy that if someone gets you here where they've scooped your elbow and it's high off the ground and their head's underneath, you effed up a long time ago, okay? That's just how it goes, right? If you're getting submitted, it's because you did things wrong. Whether you're a black belt or a white belt or something in between, if you get submitted, you made some critical mistakes. In this particular case, he just never really seemed to keep his elbows close, gave it to him, and then even as Barbarina was inching up, I just didn't see a lot from Sage trying to fight it off. Again, Maybe he would panicked, maybe he didn't know what to do, maybe his memory just blanked, who knows? Any, any number of things can happen, and again, since everyone appears to be very sensitive about him, we're not making any claims about his future, we're just talking about what happened in this fight. So, what you see here is, this is a tightening of the choke, but even this should not be enough to submit him. It's still not quite enough. You see him now, one second later, adjusting. And then this is a, a critical detail because this tells us everything. This is the moment of the tap, and we're going to look at the tap from a, a different angle. Now look, Sage Northcutt is well-muscled. So when folks defend him and they say, you know, the fact that he is so muscled, Brian Barbarina was able to get this choke from an un un unorthodox position, they're right. That is true. That is very true. Sage might tap to a choke like this earlier than someone like Brian Barberina might in a similar position, only because Brian Barberina doesn't have all those muscles pinching into everything. That That is actually a true argument. It is also true, however, that you can see just how deep underneath that. I mean, the tricep and the back of the deltoid is on, on the back of the neck of Brian Barberina. You know, Sage just let him up there. Another key detail, look how low to the ground... Barbarina's elbow is. If you go back and you watch like Lesnar versus Carwin, you'll see that Lesnar just kind of he-manned it a little bit. His elbow is way high in the air. This is a perfect triangle, man. Look at this. Top of the neck, bottom of the elbow, and then across we can't see now, but you know where, where Barbarina's hands are gripping together. But again, I want you to pay attention to something. Look at how the right hand of Northcutt is free. That might not mean something right this second, but it will make sense in just a minute. And you can see another key detail here. Look at how underneath the chin, the right shoulder of Barbarina is. In defense of Northcutt to an extent, a little bit, when people say, well, sure, he didn't tap from a head and arm triangle from opposite side half guard. He tapped to a Von Flu choke. They're not quite right. That That's not totally true. But what is true is that, yes, unequivocally, that shoulder was putting pressure into the neck directly. That would be different from a traditional arm triangle or side choke where, you know, for folks to understand this, a side choke to work, you got to be inside control for that battle to even start. Yes, Rick Story was inside the guard of Brian Foster. And again, another case where someone just absolutely he-manned it with his squeeze. And this squeeze is pretty tremendous too. But just to be clear about it, you see, uh, and I'll see in just a second, Barbarina is basically for the most part on his toes, driving his weight underneath that chin right here, um, making that both um, a head and arm triangle setup and a little bit of a Von Flew finish. But what this choke actually is, you're going to see, it's half head and arm triangle from opposite side half guard, half Von Flew choke, and it's never quite one or the other. 
So this is from the opposite side. I don't have the time on the clock, but you can see here a couple things. Again, I want you to pay attention. The right arm of Sage is not entirely free, but the right hand is not controlled. The right elbow is not controlled. He's also, in my judgment, not really doing enough. He's kind of pressing on the hip here um, to keep him away. But if if this is just ineffective. You know, a lot of people also say, oh, well, you should answer the phone when you're in that position. You know, he should have his right hand Sage should by his ear. That's true to if you can catch a submission early before someone really applies it, that's true. But here's the truth. Number one, even if you get that up, someone with a devastating squeeze is still going to get you. Um, anyone who's ever rolled with someone who has a very good head and arm triangle, you're going to feel it that even when you get that phone up, so to speak, they're still going to get you. That's the first part. The second part is even if it's effective at stopping them, it's only going to stop them for a few seconds. There's evasive maneuvers you have to get. You have to get your arms away, basically. you got to get your... Remember, we always talked about it. When your arms are outstretched, what are you? Weak. The further your elbows are away from your body, you're weak. The closer your elbows are to your body, you're strong. That's why you, they want to separate your elbow from your body. Uh, Braulio Estima always talks about this. If you're in side control on somebody, about never letting their elbows touch the mat, okay? Um, you know, pu- pushing on the hip is... Is not like the wrong thing in the sense that he, you know, he's trying to he's trying to displace the key points of weight on top of him. But it, this particular strategy is not effective, and you can see he's in half guard here. Now watch a little change. So this is to be the interesting part here. You can see before his, Sage's north cut, Sage Northcutt's legs are not flexed. Then he flexes them because what he's trying to do is he's trying to relieve pressure. You see Barbarina on his toes here. He's got live toes on his right foot. He's driving that weight across the neck and scooping that elbow. Again, elbow and hand are still free, which will be relevant in just a moment. Um, but what I think he's trying to do is he's trying to hold half guard ones because he thinks that he doesn't want um, you know, Barbarina to go to the other side, understandably. Then the other part is he's trying to get uh, waist to waist with him. If you think that the guy on top of you is driving pressure and they're high in the air, you might be tempted to think, if I can erase the gap between our hips, I can relieve some of the pressure on that choke. And again, that might work for just a second, but that in and of itself is hard to do and it's pretty laborious and that won't work for very long. It's not its not the optimum strategy to deal with it. And then you see this the moment before the tap. He's still trying to hold on to himself here and he eventually taps. And you can see that. Let's go back a second. I want to show you something here that I think is the most important critical detail. All right, so here we are again. He's pushing on the hip, and this is where it starts to get pretty serious. I keep talking about this right hand being free, okay? And this is why it's relevant. Someone's asked, what should Sage have done in this position? Well, look, let me just say something. If you're already here, let's say we had a drill where everyone in jiu-jitsu schools across the country had to start in this position. You'll start in the position that Sage Northcutt is in, and you say, go, get out. Some people are going to get out. A lot of people are just going to get tapped. Because once you've gotten here, you're in a bad position. Like, you, you, so many things went wrong for you that even if you're the best black belt in the country, you got to respect the choke. Like, a choke, if it's going to put you out, it's going to put you out. And so once you're here, you know, we're talking about last-ditch efforts. There is so much before this that should have happened that he should have never gotten to this position. So what we're talking about here is like just the, the, the you know, jumping out of a burning building and hoping that you land in the swimming pool kind of escape. This is, this is how bad it is, okay? That's, that's the thing you need to understand. So it's not clear that even the best black belt could escape. But if you're asking me what the situation is, what is the difference between a head and arm triangle 
and a Von Fluchoke. A lot of things. Most of the time, the Von Fluchoke is applied from side control. When it's applied from side control, you don't really need to scoop the other arm in that kind of way. I mean, it is scooped. It, this arm will be scooped, but there'll be a key difference here. Here's my point. If Barbarina was in side control here, rather than this half guard, imagine if Sage tucked his knee under, went to the outside of Barbarina's leg, and then bumped him over just for a moment. What would happen to the if it's a if it's a true von flu choke? What would happen? The choke would cease to exist. It wouldn't be there anymore. That's a fact. From side control, to get a Von Fluchoke, this hand has to be trapped. This arm has to be trapped. Here is the fact of the matter. In a real Von Fluchoke, you have to trap this. Because if you don't, and the person underneath bails to side control, the choke ceases to exist. And we know there's also no choke from side control. That's also a head and arm triangle. Here is the truth and the problem with what Sage Northcutt did. Again, there's a lot of things he could have done ahead of time to not put himself in this position. And he is hardly the first person in the UFC to make these kinds of mistakes. He is hardly the last one. We're just talking about what happened. The fact is, the problem with this choke is that Sage Northcutt kept himself in it. This half guard, you see him stretching his legs out. He is holding himself inside the choke. He needed to get this leg on the inside, block this hip, and then use this leg to bump the outside left leg of Barbarina over just an inch. Because just an inch is all he needs to breathe. Just an inch is all he needs for that choke to not work. Just he needs is an inch to create a scramble or to get Barbarina to rethink. And you're saying, well, he would have moved to side control. Maybe he would have submitted him later. And maybe you would have been right. Giving up a choke to move to side control is, you know, a little bit frying pan, fire kind of situation. But it still would have stopped the choke. It still would have given him a chance. It still would have been a, been a moment for him to get his hips uh, squared at some point or shrimp or do something. That's the truth. That is the ultimate truth. This kid held himself in the choke. And again, this is not the first guy to do it. He's not the last guy to do it. But that's the problem with what he did here. When this army, if this arm is free, it's a head and arm triangle. It has to be trapped to be a true Von Flu. And you can tra- you can submit someone from this position, opposite side half guard, in a Von Flu variety, but you shouldn't be able to do it if their arms are be able to be outstretched because all he has to do is bump this guy over by getting his leg inside, and the choke essentially goes away. So with that understanding, with that fact being established, let's take a look at a scenario almost identical to this where this hand was trapped and you see a very different result. Okay, so this is the scenario that we want to pay attention to. I'm sorry that this is the best introduction I have to Eric Red Schaefer. This is his rear end on top. He, Eric Schaefer's on top. There's another gentleman on bottom. I don't know who it is. You may remember who Eric Schaefer is. Eric Schaefer's a bad dude. He was a UFC veteran. Um, he's a black belt under Pedro Sauer, which means you know he is not to be trifled with at all. Maybe he doesn't have a Munjiao title, but you get a black belt from Pedro Sauer, you're going to give people a lot of problems on the mat, black belt and otherwise. So a very, very um, consistent grappler and a very, very good one too. Really nice, sharp technique all the way around. Got a lot of respect for Eric Schaefer's game here. So what are we looking at? This situation is very, very, very similar to the one we saw with Sage Northcutt. Very similar. You can see, imagine Sage Northcutt's underneath. Imagine Brian Barrina's on top. Now, look, I mentioned before, Barbarina did a really good job of getting his elbow to the ground. This one's a little bit higher up. Uh, you see him getting his elbow inside. 
Uh, Sage Lithgow was using his hand, but you can see the elbow trying to create, you know, short spaces. Um, but it looks pretty similar. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch this video, and you're going to see what I'm talking about being the critical difference about if Sage Northcutt had moved himself through a quick bump to side control, the whole choke goes away. And this is why. Watch what Eric Schaefer does here. Now, you see the guy on bottom trying to do a, a lockdown, doesn't work, lets it go. This is a little bit of a difference. Uh, Schaefer trying an in-step pass. I think he also just sort of lets it go, doesn't really need it. And then what they're going to do is they're going to jump around to the other side here. So just be patient while they come around. Just want to see the setup here. And now, well, okay, he goes back to the in-step. But you'll see it looks pretty similar. The, the in-step pass is not why he does or does not get this tap. Let's get ready to pause this because I want to show you something. Okay, this is everything. This is everything. Let's take a look at this real quickly if we can. What is the key difference that I mentioned before between this and Sage Northcutt? The answer, that. Look at this arm. It is trapped underneath the grip, the armpit, I should say, even, of Eric Schaefer. Let me erase that so you can get a good look at that again right, as I erase this poorly. Just take a look at this. Look at the difference here that you can see. The, the key detail, which I mentioned in that choke with Brian Barberina, was that it was half Von Flu, half head and arm triangle. This is all Von Flu. In a real Von Flu choke, yes, you might be inside control. That's the way we commonly understand it. But the key detail is you have to trap this arm across them. That's what keeps them shoulder locked into their own neck. Without that, they have options. Again, last-ditch options, but options. That's the whole crux to understanding the difference here. This is what Sage Northcutt had opportunities to get out, and that he didn't know them, fair enough. Not a lot of people might, in fact. I don't think Sage Northcutt is alone in that fact. Um, um, th these are not commonly taught to every blue or even purple belt across the country. Hell, even brown belts probably don't know stuff like this. Um, you know, If you're stuck in that situation, what to do? But, but here's the truth about those kinds of things. Let me take this away. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play this video. Take a look at something. What you're going to see is the guy's going to try and wiggle his hand free. Because if he can wiggle his hand free, he can make something happen. But he can't wiggle his hand free. He's in big trouble. So let's take a look at this. Watch the hand. See him wiggle it there? He's trying to get it out, and he can't. He can't do it. So here you see this... Gentleman underneath, he's in a bit of trouble here. That shoulder of Schaefer is in one side of the neck, and he's trying to get the older shoulder, other shoulder to pinch inside. And he needs this hand trapped because it keeps it there the whole time. So here's the deal. He's in half guard, but even if Schaefer moves to side control, as long as he can keep this arm underneath, the choke is still there. He may like this variation from half guard. He may feel that if he moves from half guard to side, maybe he would have lost this grip. Maybe he just liked the way it was balanced. Maybe he heard the guy gurgling. Any number of reasons why he kept it. All I'm pointing out to you is without this, without this right here, the guy underneath has options. So let's finish this out, and you can see the difference. And you'll see what he does is he pulls back on the shoulder. That's common. And for a minute here, he gets the shoulder free. Look at that. That that's that's He's okay here. This is fine. He can breathe, but you know Schaefer is is wise to the game, and he understands what he's doing. So, so let's watch this go again. Schaefer readjusts. You see that kind of kind of wiggles forward, and he's going to drive everything else together. You can't see anything, and then this is going to elicit the tap. Yeah, right there. Okay. So you get the difference here. Let's take a look at it one more time. I'm not going to belabor the point too much. We come around. Boom. That hand is trapped. That is all the difference. If that hand is not trapped, there's all different kinds of sequences you can use. Now, it's true that if someone has their 
you know, really good shoulder pressure and they're up under your chin, you know, bucking and bridging is not going to be that easy. I'm not telling you that it was, you know, for sure, Sage would have escaped. All I'm trying to tell you is this was not a traditional Von Fluchok where they had shut down basically all avenues of escape. There was a big avenue that he had an opportunity to take because that other arm was not trapped. Yes, when your when your neck is controlled and your hips are controlled, it can be well, the hips weren't exactly controlled, but if you can control the neck, that reduces a lot of mobility. I, the spin would have been tough, but the, this is the point with these head and arm triangles or, or any, any chuck, but let's talk about the head and arm triangle. If someone spins, I'll just keep playing this while I talk. If someone spins and gets to that side or passes and they get to the same side as the choke, there's still a battle there because you have to find just the right amount of pressure. It's very, very hard to do. The difference between one inch on a choke and another is the choke working. And we didn't see it. You just didn't get an opportunity to see what would have happened if Sage had bumped himself into side control to let the choke go away. Again, maybe he would have been submitted. Who knows? But that's the difference here. This guy could have gone to side control. Schaefer could have, assuming he could have kept that grip. And there he is. There's old Eric Schaefer. There's a better look at him. I apologize for the, uh, a previous look. The choke would have still worked. So he maybe have kept it in half guard for any number of reasons. Yes, Eric Schaefer, you are a champion. Um Okay, so I hope folks understand a little bit of a difference there. And you may say, last thing about this, you may say, well, Luke, this is something that only somebody really good should know. Yeah, exactly. Somebody in the UFC. You have to be understanding where North Cut is. He's 19 years old. I make no predictions about his future. He could wind up being the next big thing. I don't. I think people who are wrong and say, well, he's mentally weak, he'll never be anything. I just don't buy that. I don't think that's true at all. I just think he's very young and he's got a lot of experience he needs to get uh, in fine tuning some of the techniques and how far he can push himself in certain limits. Um, you know, he needs to test those things so he can understand what what, what those are uh, and and maybe you know expand them. But but the truth of the matter is. We get accustomed to the casual greatness of guys at the UFC who won't tap to stuff like this because, A, they never let themselves get there, and, B, they have tremendous scrambles to get out of things. You know, Good. That's the way it should be. You should be take, not taking it for granted, but when guys aren't able to do that, you shouldn't say, well, that's a really hard thing to do. It is a really hard thing to do. So is fighting in the UFC. This is a standard of fighting that is elite. It's the best of the best. And if you want to fight here – We'll, you know, we'll be understanding of your developmental programming and your developmental progression, but I'm sorry, there's a point at which we can't just for, look past things because of that. Made some key errors. Let's talk about them. We did. He'll come back. I'm sure he'll win his next fight because he's that kind of guy, but just want to talk about what happened here. Okay. Okay, and then part three here. Let's just finish this up. Let's take a look at what's coming up next week. As you know, it was supposed to be UFC 196, and now it's UFC Fight Night 82. Hendricks versus Thompson. No more Kane, no Stipe, no Verdum, no nothing. So here's the card. Uh, Johnny Hendricks taking on Stephen Thompson. That'll be the main event. Good fight. Roy Nelson taking on Jared Rochalt. Uh, I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, Oven St. Preux versus Rafael Cavalcanti. That should be interesting. Benavidez Makovsky. That's a great one. Uh, Misha Serkunov taking on Alex Nicholson. We'll see how that goes. I believe Misha Serkunov is the guy who is the judoka. Am I right? Let me verify that real quickly. Because his last bout, if that's the one I'm thinking of, was tremendo. Yes. Yeah, he's a bad... He, this, that's the guy that had the uh, the trip takedown by just using his hand to block the outside leg. Um, at Daniel Jolly, I believe. That was sick. So interesting to see him back. Uh, Mike Pyle taking on Sean Spencer. Mike Pyle is always good for a good time. Josh Bark, Josh, excuse me, Josh Berkman taking on KJ Nunes. Derek Lewis, Damian Grabowski. Someone's going to die in that one. Ray Borg, Justin Scoggins. That's an important fight for Justin Scoggins, boy. 
Noad Lahat taking on Diego Rivas. Mickey Gall versus Mike Jackson. The winner takes on CM Punk. Yay! And then Artem Lobov taking on Alex White. And that, of course, will air on Fox Sports 1, except for the two fights first will air on UFC Fight Pass. Okay, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Again, like, share, comment, and give it a thumbs up if you can. Um, you can email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. I'm on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Until next time, thank you so much for watching. Enjoy the fights. <laughs>